many, many people today feel like they're standing on shaky ground. And when you stand on shaky ground, you want to find ways to find your footing, to stabilize, to deepen your resilience, to be able to see clearly and figure out what to do. Meditation and other inner skills is the royal road to that because... Welcome to the Dr. Espen podcast, where we explore the latest in quantum science, personal development, consciousness, and spirituality, health, as well as business and money mastery. Join me as I interview experts from all over the world, sharing the most incredible stories of transformation. This is where we provide you with the exact tools and coaching activities you need to expand your consciousness in each of the eight areas of your life. For more info on our events, programs, coaching, etc., go to drespen.com for the full quantum experience. Welcome, everybody, to the Dr. Espen podcast. I am Espen. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rick Hansen, PhD, Senior uh, Fellow at the UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, New York Times bestselling author, clinical psychologist, and one of my favorite parts, meditation teacher. Today's conversation is going to go deep. We're going to talk about all things science. We're going to talk about the power of the heart. We're going to talk about the opportunity for us to live incredible lives. In this instance, Dr. Rick's books have been published in over 31 different languages, including the book Making Great Relationships, which I love to touch on today, Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwired Happiness, Just One Thing, The Buddha's Brain, and so on and so forth. He's been a co-host in what's called The Being Well podcast, something to look up, which has been downloaded over 10 million times. He's an expert in neuroplasticity, something that I'm really passionate about myself, and has taught meditation worldwide since 1974 when he started this. And I love this conversation about understanding the clinical cognitive aspects of how the brain works and the neuroscience is obviously he's got his PhD and doctorate in something very similar, but then the spiritual aspect of it, or at least the mindfulness meditation aspect of it, which I think is so incredible. So stay tuned for this incredible interview. I want to say special welcome, Dr. Rick. How are you today? I'm really happy to just hear that whole introduction. Thank you, Espen. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And it is important because I think a lot of people these days, you know, correct me if I'm wrong and I might paraphrase, but I think a lot of people are searching for or could at least need more meditation, mindfulness, and so on in their lives. So I want to start by asking, what made you interested in the intersection between psychology, neuroscience, and meditation or the mindfulness side of things? Yeah, I think what you said right there is right. Many, many people today feel like they're standing on shaky ground. And when you stand on shaky ground, you want to find ways to find your footing, to stabilize, to deepen your resilience, to be able to see clearly and figure out what to do. Meditation and other inner skills is the royal road to that because while it's also important to improve things outside us in the world and certainly to deal with our physical bodies, intervening inside your own being, your mind, your heart, I kind of use those terms interchangeably, intervening inside your own being is a special place because you have the most power there and you take the benefits with you wherever you go. So I think of what might seem like airy-fairy, woo-woo, new-agey, soft, you know, yoga camp once a year kind of hooey is actually 
incredibly hard-headed based on recognizing that the world is challenging and it's getting more turbulent more than ever. And also the world's not helping us. The cavalry is not coming, generally speaking. It's on us. So based on the sense of what can you do yourself that's kind of hard-headed and at the core of self-reliance, developing these inner qualities, these inner traits of mindfulness, self-compassion, self-worth, resilience, and happiness altogether are really hard-headed <laughs> and pragmatic things to do. I love that. I couldn't agree more. Can you go a little bit deeper into the self-reliance part of things? You mentioned yeah. something very profound then. You are wherever you are going to go. And if you feel like you're standing on shaky ground or your life is not as whatever that you'd like, how does self-reliance play a part of that, knowing that we are the only people that can change that for ourselves? Yeah. The paradox of self-reliance in, and developing it is to start by recognizing the things that are out of your control and recognizing the ways that you're suffering, you've been hammered by life, you're stressed, you're pressed, you're pushed on. We have to start there. So this is not about positive thinking or some kind of so-called spiritual bypass. This is about starting with, wow, what's real? What's real? I have a lot of background in rock climbing, some mountain climbing too, and you have to find your footing. You know, a storm's coming in, it's late in the day, you're hungry, your feet hurt, you gotta get off the rock or it's gonna be bad. What are you gonna do? You know, you have to face your situations. That's part one, certainly. Part two, you gotta get on your own side. Half the people who have walked into my office over the years as a therapist who has seen many, many, many people were not already on their own side. They were on the side of others. They were for others. They were an ally to others, but they were not a good friend of themselves. That's like the pilot light. If you don't have the pilot light ignited in your furnace, you can give it all the gas in the world and it won't matter, right? So getting on your own side, feeling that you have the right to get on your own side, having a kind of tender, kind attitude toward yourself, even if you're a rough and tough guy, and also a certain muscularity to it. Like, I'm going to be on my own side. I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to do the best I can. And then to me, last is to really focus on what can you learn today? How can you grow a little today? What's in your power today to become a little stronger, a little wiser, a little kinder to yourself, a little more skillful, because that's what's under your control. You can't change the past or even the present as it appears, but you can change who you are becoming. So that focus that people call it growth mindset, a la Carol Dweck, but it's a fundamental orientation toward having a learning curve that isn't dead flat. It's actually reaching up. And then in the process of that, the underlying psychological forces of self-reliance hardwired into your nervous system will gradually develop. But you have to start by recognizing what what sucks in your life? What are you dealing with? And then you got to get on your own side and then you need to have a learning orientation. I love that. When you say getting on your own side, I'm getting the self-reliance and self-compassion piece. What do you find in your experience with patients and lecturing around the world and the amazing work that you're doing with the Compassion Coalition Project, which we'll come back yeah. to in a moment. What do you found to be some of the greatest obstacles or challenges in people's lives when it comes to being their own best friends or, you know, falling in love with how they show up in life or however we want to word it? What are some of the yeah. challenges that you've witnessed? Internalized criticism from others, especially mm -hmm. while growing up, big. Second, living in a culture or being a person who is systematically told that you do not matter as much as others or that your job is to take care of them rather than taking care of yourself. And some of those messages are gendered. You can recognize the female version of that and the male version of that, you know, beyond. Third, I think at a certain level, sometimes people feel that it's selfish or vain or somehow sinful or narcissistic to have the kind of kindness toward themselves that I'm talking about, while actually 
if people develop compassion for themselves and a kindness for themselves, they get less selfish. They become less of a jerk toward other people. They actually, because they're building up this unshakable core inside of resilient well-being so that when the waves of life come, this is the essence of resilience. It's a stable core of coping and well-being, right? If you're coping while being endlessly miserable and depressed and suicidal, that's not resilience. You know, mm. resilience, it's like surfing, you know, I've never physically surfed, but I've done, been in the ocean a lot. And I don't know, you're smiling, maybe you've actually surfed yourself. You, you know, you're riding the waves. And yeah, you know, it's tense, you're alert, but it's still pretty great. That's resilience. That's really resilient. So to me, those are some of the key forces here. And to overcome them, first, you have to realize that it's fair for you to be on your own side, to stand up for yourself. Second, to have a quality of heart for yourself. And then third, being muscular about it, being determined about it. And then then you bring it out into the world, right? Just that alone makes you more resilient. The things mm. I said, seeing your challenges clearly, getting on your own side and having a learning orientation makes you more resilient. And then in addition, there are a couple that I find really super cool. One I'll just name is happiness, genuine happiness, genuine looking for things that you enjoy, feeling a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction in your life, gratitude, positive emotion, as Barbara Fredrickson and other academics have shown, is a major factor of resilience and long-term health. Second, heartfelt connections with others. You know, I kind of want to range from sorrowful compassion for what people are suffering all the way to exuberant joy in doing something together, like celebrating with your mates because you're team one, you know, in some way, everything in between that kind of social range, major factors of resilience. And then I think last, I'll just name because you're a spiritual person, a sense of larger perspective. You know, there's actually good brain science stuff about the value of taking a wider view, seeing the whole, even lifting your gaze to the horizon line, does good things neurologically to reduce activation in the default mode network. I think of that as the ruminator where we go, you know, when we're ruminating and worrying and resenting and self-criticizing, right? A bigger picture, a wider whole, seeing things over the sense of time, you know, recognizing that all phenomena are occur interdependently, everything is exists relationally in a larger field and everything that does exist is empty of absolute essence. So it occurs relationally. And just that perspective, that wider view is calming and brings in new information and helps you be more resilient. Perfect. I love this. Where does meditation fit in? We look at the world, we see it's busy in many ways, many places. And of course, the world that's most relevant in this instance, I believe, is the world in between your two ears, our two ears and yeah. the people experiencing life. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about meditation. We know it all. But honestly, what have you found? And for those out mm -hmm. there listening, watching, who may not be meditating, they may be meditating, I want to take it to the next level. Can you tell us a little bit about the research and the importance of meditation and anything mm. else feels relevant in that regard. Yeah. So there's meditation and then there's the general factor of mindfulness and being a mindful person, building up the trait of real-time mindfulness so that even when challenges come, you still can sustain that quality of presence of mind. There's a stability in you that's a great resource when what's outside you is really unstable and shaky. 
Mm -hmm. So meditation is to the mind and eventually to the body what aerobic exercise or just general activity is to the body. Like I look at you, I go, oh, that dude is pretty fit. You know, if we wanted to prescribe things that would have healthy benefit for the mind, meditation would be very, very much at the top. And it's important to appreciate that there are different kinds of meditation. There are secular meditations like just following your breath or finding stable mindfulness. A lot of people meditate in a religious frame. You know, for them, contemplative practice has a prayerful dimension to it. So to me, it's important to include all of that, including certainly the practices of the indigenous people, the First Nations people of the world, including in your own home country in Australia, certainly mine in North America. These are very important practices to appreciate. So tons of research on the health benefits of mindfulness of many, many kinds. I'll just, because you're obviously a geek for this kind of thing. That's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Four ways regular meditation makes your brain better. You ready? Okay. All right. Makes your brain better based on structural changes in your brain, changes of structure and function that are visible in hardcore MRI studies, EEG studies, you know, really hardcore stuff. Okay, four ways it makes your brain better. One, it builds up the circuits of attentional regulation. That's a fancy phrase for being able to pay attention to what you want to pay attention to and keep it there and without being distracted all the time and also pull your attention away from stuff that's just not good for you to keep thinking about again and again and again. Right. So regulating your attention, incredibly helpful. The busier, the noisier, the louder the world gets, the more shiny objects that are trying to grab our attention, you know, with a lot of profit motives behind them, the more important it is to get control of your attention. Also, technically, attention is like a spotlight and vacuum cleaner. It illuminates what it rests upon and then it sucks it into your brain because neuroplastic change in your nervous system, right, is really heightened for what we sustain attention to. There's a traditional saying, your mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. Well, your brain takes its shape, literally, from what your mind rests upon. Where's your mind resting? Most people, you know, it's resting on their resentments, their worries, their feeling of inadequacy, intense pressure, their irritations. Well, gradually they become a more anxious, irritable, and unhappy person. So where do you rest your attention? Okay. Second, ways meditation makes your brain better is that it improves emotion regulation. You become more able to kind of manage emotional reactions, which include both not letting yourself get hijacked by runaway anger or anxiety or feelings of inadequacy, while on the other hand, becoming more able to tolerate and be open to flows of emotion, you know, rather than pushing them down or pushing them away, like, you know, many people do, particularly men. So emotion regulation, really useful. It's also useful because there's studies that show if you use powerful magnets to knock out the emotion centers of the brain, and then you give people tests of decision-making, including in complex situations involving other people, their performance will just plummet if you knock out their emotion centers. We mm. need those emotion centers to function in business and in, and in real life. Okay. Third way it makes your brain better is that it deepens the sense of body awareness so that you get more in touch with yourself. And when you're more in touch with yourself, you feel more whole as a person. You're also more open to useful information from your body. And as you deepen in body awareness, it brings you into the present. And you also have a more holistic sense of yourself and, you know, self self-referential muttering in your brain that takes everything so personally. So it gets gradually quieter as people become arrested in embodiment. And then fourth way it makes your brain better is that it kind of shifts the sense of self to become broader, 
more flexible, more open, less rigid, less possessive, less territorial, less identified with this or that. Shifts the sense of self. So it also increases the sense of connectedness with everything. So the self-world boundaries start to become less rigid and people become more open to feeling lived and buoyed by life rather than separated and beset by life. Four ways that meditation makes your brain better. Phenomenal. Go back and listen to that again, everybody. I just want to read a couple of things out. I've been researching your work and there are four words by Thich Nhat Hanh talking about Rick's work. It offers simple, accessible, practical steps to touching the peace and joy that's within every person's birthright. Rick Hansen, brilliant in the capacity to offer practical, powerful and scientifically grounded practices, says Tara Brock, PhD, Mark Hyman, MD. I'm going to start blessing. Wait, wait. Well, I'm just speaking this out because one, to be able to have the neuroscience behind it, I think is very useful. But to have people that are, as far as I'm concerned, you know, can see the late great Thich Nhat Hanh, et cetera, to have four words and speak of this work, I think it's really important to not just to, you know, inflate mm-hmm. your ego Thank and you. give you the appropriate compliments, but for everyone listening to really get the grasp of what we're talking about here and mm-hmm. the fundamental necessity for this in our lives. So I just want to say thank you again for taking the time. As we talk about meditation and neuroscience and obviously neuroplasticity, which you've spent so many years learning, what do you feel is the connection to us as beings and the quantum field, source consciousness, whichever way you want to talk about it? What role does that play in a person living a magnificent and healthy life? Wow. Big question, right? Well, far out, Aspen. I mean, you didn't swerve away from that question. Far out. Because I think a lot of people chicken out and they don't want to face that question. Now, maybe the answer to that question is not at all. Okay. I disagree with that answer, but at least a person can actually face that question and not swerve from it. Good on you. Yeah. Wow. To be real, for many, many people, they are engaging meditative practices of some kind for purely psychological, secular purposes inside the so-called natural frame of the Big Bang universe. There's no reference to what they're doing to quantum field, source consciousness, you know, non-dual knowing, you know, the absolute, the divine God and so forth. Okay. And I think fantastic. Whatever's helpful for you. If a person like you clearly and I wants to help relieve suffering, we meet people where they are, pure and simple. That said, I think for many people, to use a metaphor, if each of us is like a wave in the ocean, if the wave that has our name tag, <laughs> you know, the Aspen wave, the Rick wave, yeah. okay. If that wave is really agitated and just kind of in shock, you know, I don't know if you're going to show the video of this, but I'm waving my hand, you know, like, eh. it's really hard for the wave to recognize that it's part of an ocean whose nature is water. On the other hand, if a person takes a few breaths, and I'll actually name a little practice here, if you'll let me, involving Wait. three breaths, three breaths that have neurological effect, you can use more than you can spend more than three breaths worth of time with the three breaths. But if they just take a few breaths, suddenly that wave gets less agitated. It's less agitated. Okay. It's less in shock or pain. It's less overwhelmed. It's less frozen in trauma. It's more stabilized. And then as it gets quieter and quieter after a few more breaths, maybe a minute has gone by, there's a natural widening of awareness with a growing recognition. Oh, all these other waves next to me, they have their own being too. Wow. I need to take them into account. Oh, and oh, even more broadly, as we really start getting quieter, oh, and more stable and simply more present, or maybe the heart is starting to open, there can become a growing awareness of the whole sea, the whole ocean. And then maybe at certain moments or flashes of this, Tibetan saying moments of awakening many times a day, right? 
maybe there's just flashes of this, or maybe there's a growing stability of the sense of it of, oh, wow, this wave that I am is a local expression of the whole ocean and is emerging even from a mysterious ground that is universal, that full of possibility, you know, as it emerges into actuality. And maybe some people experience, it sounds like you do, that the ground of all is in mysterious ways conscious in some way, even benevolent. That might be a way that meditation can help us experience the big picture. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. And I think coming from your clinical background to be able to be scientifically backed, same as what I'm delivering to yeah. much to really have that essence of, I mean, call it spirituality, mindfulness, some people yeah. call it religion, whatever it might be, but to be able to recognize that we are a unique expression of the whole. And yeah. if we can expand our awareness at that level, I think everything will begin to change. And obviously this is the number one law of the 12 universal laws, the law of divine oneness, how we're unique expressions of something. The wave is the wave yes but are you not part of the ocean and i think this is a great great analogy and i know in this regard or in other regards you're working and you're the founder of the global compassion coalition project can you please Mm. tell us about global compassion coalition what is it why are you doing it so people can go to the website globalcompassioncoalition.org we've launched about six months ago over 100,000 people and organizations, including many leading people around the world and leading organizations all around the world have joined, basically recognizing that something has gone really wrong and how the world is run. There are some bright pockets. I'm all for civil society like Australia. You know, I'd rather live in South Korea than North Korea, right? You know, and still it's really clear that the world is run for the few at the cost of the many. generally speaking. So what can we do about that? That's moved by compassion. How can we come together at a scale that's big enough to be strong enough to ultimately change systemic sources of suffering? And I think for some people, they look at the state of the world and they shrug and they say, wow, I'm going to take care of, you know, my own people, or even I'm going to focus on the individual level of improvement, which has been my career. And it's what you do too, Espen, and it's honorable. It's wonderful. Meanwhile, there's a way in which that's like teaching emotional intelligence skills on the deck of the Titanic as it races toward the clearly visible iceberg in broad daylight. That's the state of the world today. We are racing toward catastrophe with global warming, rising militarization, rising authoritarianism, to name three obvious and frankly intertwining forces in the world. And the people in the the bridge, you know, running the ship are making as much money as they can, as fast as they can, while the Titanic races toward the iceberg. And so for me, what's important is both and. Teach mindfulness on the deck. Teach emotional intelligence skills to children in schools on the deck of the Titanic. Meanwhile, banding together as passengers and crew at a scale that can force the ship to change its course before complete catastrophe. That's the vision of the Global Compassion Coalition. Beautiful. Would you say that this is in alignment with or related to something like the Maharishi effect, when we see Mm. 7,000 meditators coming together, breathing, meditating on peace, love, and then emanating that out to the world, reducing global crime rate by up to 16% and many other amazing metrics that come out of that study. Is it a similar type approach? And what are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's very interesting. I am fine with interventions of that sort. And I believe in them. And I think you may have heard the saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. 
Ah, lovely. Yeah. A lot of dogmatics, so-called scientists, have a profoundly unscientific attitude that just rejects anything as being possible that somehow doesn't have 50 double-blind studies in a meta-analysis. What happened to hypothesis? And yeah, what happened to wrong? open-minded? Beginner's yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. You know the line, right? In a beginner's mind are many possibilities in an expert's mind are few. And I yeah. love science. I weekly get Science Magazine, right? It and Nature are the two leading publications in English. I love it because it's real news. It's not fake news. It's not disinformation. It's real factual stuff. I love that stuff. That said, I think there clearly are forces and energies and mysteries that scientific inquiry is in its infancy with regard to them. Okay. In addition to those kinds of effects that you might get with a billion people around the world, think at scale. There are 8 billion people in the one human tribe, the one human band now at scale, 8 billion of us. You can just imagine what might happen. Okay, that's great. I'm also interested in other pathways. I'm interested in pathways that lead to changing systemic factors of suffering that involve things like civic engagement or that involve individuals taking political action to force corporations to change various policies, to joining together in ways that could do that. So I'm interested in both. I'm all for these more consciousness-oriented, energy-oriented, quantum-level-oriented interventions. Great. And also, uh, what can we do to force corporations to simply declare their carbon footprint every year, which they resist doing because they are dumping their shit into the sky for the rest of us to deal with for a thousand years to come. They don't want to admit it. That's called externalizing costs economically. They're not paying their way. So that's an example. There are many others. I think that's a really important example as well. You know, many say and research also that we've gone extinct, say, five times. This is we're deep into the sixth mass extinction. If we continue on the yeah. same trajectory, we certainly are going yeah. to go extinct. So what do you see? Humanity's evolution, future. And my two cents worth, a mentor of mine yeah. once said, if you ask the question, where's the world going, then you're not a leader making the change. So I'm out there making a change. You are making yeah. a change. Many listeners and viewers are making a change. And on top of that, awareness that we are making a difference, that we're heart-centered beings doing that for ourselves and obviously for others as well. Where do you see the world going and what are the shifts in consciousness and or whatever you wish to speak to that is necessary to be mm. able to come out on top and, as you said, not take the power away, but to equilibrate what's going on with the power of the few, having yeah. all the money and all the power, heading towards that iceberg and actually yeah. pivoting as a humanity. Yeah. What can we do on an individual mm. level and what are your thoughts? on this is a big topic. I mean, if we do continue, yeah. we're heading for the iceberg. What do we do here? Beautiful question. It would be so easy to, you know, imagine. So here you are, you and I are at the bar, right? We're both having a beer. We could just rattle on for a couple hours, but I'm going to try to be a lot more succinct than that, right? Let's see here. My opinion. Number one, promote civil society. Because in civil society, think about the last 10,000 years. It's been Game of Thrones for most people in most places for most years in the last 10,000 years. Only in the last couple hundred years, Years, starting with America, a few other countries, maybe Switzerland, kind of, and then increasingly Australia, Finland, and so forth. Do you actually have civil society with real functioning democracies, pluralistic institutions, and pluralistic power centers? Because if you don't have pluralistic power centers, suddenly it's kings, queens, thugs, warlords, dictators, whatever they're called. So you building the fabric of civil society. And as right now, we are pressure 
We're pressure testing humanity. We're pressure testing the planet. We're moving to its carrying capacity for our species. We're running out of resources. In those kind of conditions, tyranny and authoritarianism often grounded on, you know, developing grievances, you know, and people being aggrieved and vengeful, now backing an authoritarian, a strong man on a horse, it's Mm. said. We're under those kind of pressures and the main bulwark against tyranny is civil society. So local organizations, you know, football clubs, parent-teacher associations, city councils, you know, centers of power in societies that can stand up against would-be dictators. So that's really important. And that includes civic engagement, particularly with young people who tend to check out, they feel helpless. They don't have a sense of connection to the whole. So connecting the personal to the political so that we all have a stake in the future. Even if we're not directly affected, even if our vote is just one of millions, we are participating in the greater good. And I think it's kind of moral. I mean, that muscular aspect of self-reliance involves a work ethic. You know what it's like. You're in a team, you're in a company, you have a sports club, whatever, and there's someone who's just kind of a slacker. They're sort of a freeloader. They're just riding. That's not good. We can't, none of us can afford to be a freeloader in the effort it takes to make civils, to protect and build and extend civil society, including into tipping point countries like India or, you know, countries, Brazil, Nigeria, around the world, let alone eventually, hopefully China, although I think that's going to be a stretch. So protect civil society. I think that's really important. Another one, just to say it, is that obviously we need to build up our resilience in the face of the challenges that are going to come. Even in the best estimates, you're probably pretty aware of them, the planet's going to heat up by at least five degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. That's really going to pressure test us. There are going to be more storms, crop failures, going to be famines, resource shortages. How can we develop resilience? Resilience does not undermine reducing emissions. It just faces reality that even if we reduce emissions, Tomorrow, all the greenhouse gases in the sky are going to keep heating the planet for a while. So focusing on resilience. I don't think the human species is going to go extinct. I think in the extreme, and I want to be really clear how horrific this is, what I'm about to say, in the extreme, two billion people may die. Horrific. Well, the human species will continue. You know, it will continue. So I think that's true. Long term, I'm very hopeful. Short term, I think we're going to have a rocky century. I agree. And there many people look at this as in what's been happening in the world and also some in religious or spiritual concept of the great awakening or whatever you might call it. You know, do you think this is a relevant thing going on now? Is this something happening on a spiritual level? Is that part of your hypothesis or is it clearly cognitive and something else? What are your thoughts? I'm a Buddhist who believes in God as I use that word. That's a quick thumbnail summary. But my notion of the ground is that it's the ground of the whole universe. And it ultimately could be the ground of many universes. And I don't think Earth is special. I think it's special in some sense, but I don't think any part of the universe is special to the ground beyond the sense that every part is special. So I think it's kind of egocentric and self-centered. It was a really hard push for, you know, Western civilization to recognize that Copernicus was right, that the earth is not the center of the universe and the human species is not the centerpiece of God's plan. I just think that's grandiose and delusional. My notion of the divine is that it's the ground of all. It's a generative, unconditioned, timeless, eternal probably conscious and benevolent in the sense of the givingness of the arising of every moment kind of ground that's really important to tap into. I don't think it's true, although I could be wrong, that there's some kind of cosmic plan that the human species has to go through this crisis to fully awaken. Now, going through this crisis, 
I think on the other side of it, including related to the growing power of women, long overdue, yes, rooted right. in you know the long overdue education of girls. I am hopeful that our species will grow up because we're going to have to. Yeah. You know, in the American Revolution, apparently, as our founding fathers, they were all men, signed the Declaration of Independence. One of them said to the others, "Gentlemen, now we must all hang together because if we don't, we shall all hang separately." Oh, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Truth bump moment. <laughs> That's our moment as a species. Yes, that is exactly where we're at. And I feel that. I feel like with every part of me yeah, coming together and creating the change that we want to see together. Very special. Yeah. Again, I thank you for your time. I want to just make sure that people know where to go because this is very useful, very mm. conscious, very necessary information. RickHanson.net is the website, the book. We talked about a couple, but one thing I'd really like you guys to go and check out is Making Great Relationships. And we've got Neurodharma that we talked about before, word from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and many others. Where else, Rick, do people go to learn more about your work? Oh, thank you. So it's Rick Hansen, S-O-N, S-O-N.net. RickHanson.net. And in addition to my website, which is just chock full of great resources, the Being Well podcast is not competitive with yours. It's another good presentation regularly, I'd recommend. And then a little time that we have, I just want to add one third point to what you said. You asked me, so what do I think? I said, well, I think it's important to build up civil society. And I think that it's important to take the long view. In addition to that, it's important to come together with others because classically, the alphas divide the betas. That's how Game of Thrones operated, right? And so what we need to do is we need to look for ways to join with others at a scale that's big. So neighborhood associations, professional groups, small communities. The Charter for Compassion has done a fantastic job. Lynn Reeder, one of the key people there, Compassion Australia. It's really good building up ways that more and more people can connect with each other to stand together for the greater good. And one of the things finished on that it's near and dear to me because I love wilderness. You know, I love being outdoors and I love nature and I feel sorrowful about what global warming is doing to species, you know, that will be forever gone once they go extinct. It's real. Every individual, certainly in the developed countries of the world, like you and me, can mitigate the harms they do through their own carbon footprint. No matter how green they are or how much they're conserving, there's an irreducible carbon footprint. In America, the average carbon footprint is 16 metric tons a year. In Australia, you're better than we are. (laughs) It's probably closer to eight. You know, it's still real. The cost of each metric ton that inexorably we are involved in generating through our activities is estimated at about $250 per ton. The cost of mitigating that impact is less than $20 a ton. For less than 50 Australian cents a day. Do you have cents? You have half a dollar, right? Yeah, that's it. Each of us can literally zero out the impact of the logs we're throwing on the giant bonfire that's producing the greenhouse gases from humanity every year. And imagine a mass movement of 100 million, even 500 million people worldwide making a moral commitment to being personally net zero themselves. That would reduce five to 10% per year of the carbon emissions going up in the sky. That would have the largest single impact of any intervention. And no one can stop us. 50 cents a day, net zero, Mm. neutralizing the harms you're doing. First of all, do less harm, basic moral principle. So that would be another thing that people could join together in doing. 
that's within reach for each of us. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your <laughs> wisdom, for your time, for your heart. Oh, um, thank for you. Messages. Yeah, really, really special. I've got a last question for you. You think you may have answered it, but I'll ask it All just right. in case. And it goes yeah. like this straight off the cuff. I want you to imagine now that every person on the planet has gathered to hear the message from Rick Hansen. Mm. Take a breath whenever you're ready. What is your message to the world right now? It's a great question to take it for real. The first intuitive heartfelt response was listen, not listen to me, really listen, listen to each other, listen to the, the suffering in others, listen to the call of your own heart, listen to the trees, to the land, to the seas, to the ancestors, listen. Answered like a Buddhist. <laughs> Thanks, Aspen. Honestly, that was great. That knocked me into a great place. I appreciate it. I want to try to listen more myself. Oh, I think there's no better way to end this conversation than exactly that. And, you know, my practice with Buddhist meditation, Vipassanas over the years, has been mm. one of the greatest gifts that I've ever given to myself. So let us take this message away. Let us really tune in. Let us really become present and let us really take the time to listen. Thank mm. you so much for listening to us having this conversation. And again, thank you so much, Rick, for taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to learn more about how to walk the quantum path into life mastery, business mastery, uh, if you want to learn more about our live events or coaching or anything that we offer, go to www.drespen.com. That's D-R-E-S-P-E-N.com or email info at drespen.com. And let's find out how we can help you take your life, your business and your mission to a whole nother level. We'll see you next time.